0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Les Crusades, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com.
2: Monday, December 3rd is our annual gala, Winter in the Garden, and you are invited. Celebrate the season with Heritage Radio Network at the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. It's the one night of the year where you can show your support for HRN while sipping on champagne, hanging out with our hosts, and bidding on one-of-a-kind silent auction items. VIP hour goes from 6 to 7, featuring a tour of the Bonsai Room. At 7, all of our guests can sample bites from some of our favorite chefs. Head to heritageradionetwork.org slash gala for tickets.
3: Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Terry Thiess. We'll talk to Terry about his new book and his portfolio of wines. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Terry Thies, a frustrated rocker, (laughs) is an importer of highly curated boutique wines from Germany, Austria, and Champagne. He has played a critical role in exposing the country to the joys of great Riesling, Gruner, Grower Champagne, and more through his portfolio, Terry Thies Estate Selections. Terry has won the James Beard Award, recognizing him for Outstanding Wine and Spirits Professional. Terry is also a prolific author and wine writer, penning Reading Between the Wines, and his brand new book, What Makes a Wine Worth Drinking, in Praise of the Sublime, um, has just come out. Terry has been at this for over 30 years, and his views of wine are vastly different than most in the business. Fair enough? Yeah, totally. Welcome to the Great Nation, Terry. Thanks for having me, Sam. All right, so I think the best way to start is even though you've been around and you've probably doing this as well and longer than anyone, I still think it would be nice if you gave our listeners some background, um, more in the context of when you got in the business up until the present. So talk about your journey in life and wine that got you to the portfolio which has been, you know, going on for a while yeah. and the book and yeah. then we'll get into both of yeah. those things.
2: Well, when you start to tell that story, of course, <laughs> it's hard to know what what details to leave out because I lived in Germany for 10 years from 20 years old to 30 years old. Why? See, that's the whole thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I had lived in Germany, I had lived in Germany as a middle schooler. My father was oh, the okay. director of the European Division of Voice of America. So we were stationed in Munich. And I liked my life in Munich. There's a very formative years, those years. And I was in my first rock band at that point, a very polyglot band. We had an Italian drummer, a German bass player, British lead rhythm guitar player, and then me, the American who sang and played lead. And we wanted to call the band Plastic Surgery. This was like 1966 or okay. something. But the Italian drummer, who didn't speak any English, heard it wrong. So we showed up at our first gig, and he's got plastered on the front of his drums the plastic association (laughs) so we were stuck with that sobriquet okay so forgive that tangent okay good one though i went back to to munich uh, taking what i thought was going to be a a hiatus from college it was the middle of my sophomore year and uh ended up getting kind of financially stuck in munich by which i mean we didn't have enough money to leave and we were living essentially at that point from paycheck to paycheck. And we were working as what they call civilian components for the Department of Defense, which basically mean, meant that the Army had work it needed done and didn't have enough active duty troops to do it. So if you were an American, you could get work. And it wasn't very well paid work, but which is the reason that we were sort of scraping along. <laughs> so uh, back in those days, I wanted, you mentioned, I wanted to be a rock star. And once I realized that the life of a working musician wasn't going to be for me, having to do with clubs and cigarette smoke and humping your gear and trying to find out where to rehearse and finding three other people who wanted to play the same kind of music that I did. Beatles did,
3: and they did it in Germany, but, tr- but continue. That's
2: <laughs> true. Well, I did not have my Raper Bond <laughs> okay. moments. Uh, <clears throat> so then I wanted to write about music, and that wasn't working out. Um And so I I drifted for a few years and wine really rescued me. I always say that. I didn't know what I would have done with my life. I don't have any reason to think I would have been anything other than a failure if I hadn't really become passionately interested in wine, which then became a passionate desire to find a way to work in it, with it, somehow. So... Living in Europe and being into wine, I had five really good years where I could explore wine at the source. And that formed the basis of all the values that I bring into the whole wine thing. My ex-wife uh, wanted to return to the U.S. This was back in 1983. I wasn't eager to return, but I was eager to stay married, so I followed her back, and mm. um, At that point, I had published a few wine articles in the late lamented uh, Friends of Wine magazine, Les Amis du Vin. And Les Amis du Vin had um, tasting chapters in all these different cities around the country. So uh, I was known to those folks. I wrote to somebody in Washington and asked him, can you you steer me towards people who might employ somebody like me? And he said, well, I haven't got a job for you, but there's someone you should talk to. And that person was Bobby Catcher. So the rest is history. You know, I worked for... How would
3: you describe Bobby as one of the early established importers? Yeah, and Bobby, this wasn't even an importer. One of a handful.
2: Yeah, he was working for Leo Fox at World Shippers and Importers in those days. He hadn't gone off on his own. But, you know, so Bobby, for me, was an up-close-and-personal model of what an artisan importer ought to be. Uh, leaving aside his personal tastes and proclivities, <laughs> he now Bobby's a hero of mine and always will be. He's very much a professional conscience, even though our particular tastes for wine are like a Venn diagram. You know, there's a, right. a, a small area where they intersect, but then he goes his way and I go mine. But I have unqualified respect for Bobby, and not only because he got me my first job. So uh, a lot of this is, is detailed in the book. I went to work for a distributor. Uh, I don't think that they really wanted to hire me. I think they wanted to uh, not to displease Bobby. Okay, oh so that's they gave not me, good. So they gave me a territory consisting of all the accounts either that we had never called on or had been thrown out of. So I was definitely thrown to the wolves. Uh, my experience of working around the U.S. Army was very helpful to me in that regard because you know, I learned how to get along with all kinds of different people. So uh, they had been pegged as a wine geek, but I needed to survive And rather to my surprise, I discovered that I had um, an inner desire I would not have anticipated to make the sale. I liked to close. I liked to make the sale. And when I began searching- That's a hard thing. It is a hard thing. So to identify that was a great thing. Yeah, and you know, I remember my, again, my ex-wife talking to me about this because this was an element of me that she had never seen because it had never existed. So she says, what do you think underlies it? And I said, well, I mean, really what underlies is is I'm thinking about the other guy and thinking, why should that fucker get the sale and not me? So, yeah. you know, later when I was able to sell wines that I had selected and wines that I very deeply believed in, then my desire to make the sale was on behalf of the wines themselves. I didn't have anything to prove at that point. My ego was not bound up in, right. in writing the order. But I wanted to be the champion for the producer, and so it was terribly important to me that those worthy wines found a welcome in the marketplace. Which is
3: a very important mantra of yours. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's what you do. Yeah. Um, so when do you start your own portfolio?
2: 1985, I dabbled at it. We were selling some German wines uh, that we bought from other importers, and I walked into my boss's office. Why
3: they had too much or it was a tough
2: sell or we just whatever. yeah we had we had suppliers who had German wine in their portfolio. They had me pegged to somebody who could okay. sell them so I did. All right. but it, it, it occurred to me uh, we could source directly because I had all these relationships in Germany and by so doing, we could a we could have things that no one else had. and B, we could collapse the two. Uh, profit margins that of the importer and that of the wholesaler into one bring the wines to market for very low prices and be making extra money so that's how i sold the concept to the owner of the company at the time and i don't understand looking back on it why this particular guy decided to trust me but he sent me over to germany for a week and i came back with the, the basically the beginnings of what became this portfolio um Sold a small amount of wine successfully, and expanded it the following year. So the first year that I really introduced what I would consider to be a German portfolio was calendar year nineteen eighty six, and that also was the first year that I had really tasted a vintage in this case eighty five, in detail comprehensively from barrel. As a civilian, when I was living over there, I wasn't tasting barrel samples. I was tasting wines, finished wines in bottle, bottle wine. You know, So tasting in cask was a, a very different experience. One, it turned out I had a talent for, thankfully. But uh, again, you know, I had been into wine at that point for seven or eight years and was beginning to not feel cocky about it, but beginning to feel like, okay, yeah. I've, I've got this stuff down pretty well. But tasting in barrel was, oh, back to school. You know, it was really just all the way back. It sort of erased what I thought I knew. Right. And I had to come back to wine tabula rasa. I guess that
3: that was a good uh, thing. It's always a good thing that you got you know knocked back to that. What was the climate temperament you know feelings in the states about German wines? I mean that your part of the story is great. Now no. they're here. Does anyone give a crap? Well, no, it's
2: kind of the, the the last hurrah of the old German wine market took place with the vintage 1983, which was considered to have been a great one, and which was the first great one for quite a number of years. The previous one had been 76. So you go a long way between great years. (coughs) Also, 83 was plentiful. So, and it corresponded to a period of time where the dollar was very strong. So a huge amount of vintage 83 flooded the market. In the two years that followed, the dollar plummeted. 84 was not a very good vintage. The pipeline was clogged still with all this cheap wine from vintage 83 and then comes me so i move into what was really a moribund market at that wow point. was and 83 a good vintage it was a good vintage. it was big and good it was big and good and okay. and it has it has become i'd say even better a looking ca- back it's a, a beautiful classic vintage now vintage yeah, to drink a classic. now mm-hmm. yeah so you know i came into what was at that point a very sleepy market now, I didn't know because I'd never studied business. There's a theory, a business theory, that the best time to get into a market is when the market is, is in its doldrums. Because when it invariably rises, then you rise along with it. So, But those were some pretty lonely years, those first few years. Well, listen, it didn't discourage you, right? Well, I was just so happy to be able to do work that I loved. I figured it was just a privilege at that point, you know, having worked in wholesale, where part of the job is selling wine you don't like, I was just so happy to have gotten out from under that and be able to advocate wines I believed in passionately. So the way I looked at it is I don't have to get rich. I just have to write enough business to keep the wolf from the door and remember that the privilege is doing the work. Right. Yeah. The privilege doing the work, the fact that you loved it. Yeah. I mean, how
3: many people get a job like that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk to your friends on your left and right. You know, they're not doing that. So, uh, technically, the portfolio starts when? Early, mid-'80s?
2: Let's say it starts
3: 1986. So we're talking over 30 years. Yeah, we're talking over
2: 30 years. And then what catapulted me was, uh, through fortunate happenstance, was meeting Bob Parker and tasting with Bob. And once I was Parkerized, as the saying goes... But he was... You know, I've been following him for a long time. He was a fan of German wines, wasn't he? He may well have been. Um, I heard from him, actually, though there was a go-between who knew him. And he called me one day, to say, uh, I hear good things about your German wine portfolio. I need an education in German wines. Can we taste together?
3: That's impressive. And when
2: I picked my jaw up off the floor, I <laughs> right. somehow managed to croak out, well, <laughs> yes, I guess. What did you have in mind? So That's interesting. Yeah, so that was good. I mean, and obviously it had... That, f- that was a turning point, yeah, too. Very much so. And a lot of things can be said about Bob, and I've said a lot of things over the years, mostly complimentary because I feel that way. But it should be remembered that one of the saintliest things that I think Parker did was to really help create the climate where small importers like myself could flourish. That's a great point. It's tremendous. Whatever
3: people think of him, you don't realize the impact that
2: had on the market. Absolutely. You know, because there are so many that are so important. Yeah, he made it viable for the likes of me and others like me to bring tremendously interesting, unheralded, in many cases, unknown or undiscovered wines to the marketplace. So you can really look right at Bob Parker and say, he bears a tremendous responsibility for making the marketplace vibrant. It's
3: funny because it was harder then than
2: now. Now people look for unknown
3: wine winemakers, areas. Yeah. You know that then it's like, you know, yeah. What is this? We don't want it. All right, so that's how that started. That's how that started. All right, so before we get into the book, let's just talk a little wine, and then we'll talk about the book. Okay. Um, tell me about what's exciting you now. I mean within your portfolio, outside of your portfolio, regions, makers,
2: varietals? I mean, is there... There's got to be stuff going on every year. Oh, naturally. I mean, look, you know, we've all got... We have transient passions and we have durable passions. What does that uh, mean? What it means is the transient passions are the things that you, that answer your question, what's exciting you now? So I would say Ribera Sacra, for example, is exciting okay, me now. From- uh, Chablis is exciting me now. And... If I were 25 years younger, those might be or might have been areas that I would have wanted to go into. And then you know, the durable passions are the things that you always love and the things that are always stirring, and those are the same as they ever were. And everyone knows my portfolio and can anticipate the kinds of wines that I would like to drink at home. But outside of my portfolio, the things that I really love drinking are old Riojas in the classic style. Um, Burgundy goes without saying, I think. Red, especially. White Burgundy, a little more so now. There were there was a period of time when it bore too heavy a resemblance to New World Chardonnay, and it yeah. was very uninteresting at that point. Chablis is mentioned. I was just going to say Chablis can fulfill that. Yeah. You know Shannon. Right. Uh, very much so. Very much so. Always has been, and, and it's a type of wine I love very much. Nebbiolo Barolo Barbaresco of a certain age. Uh, what? I don't especially like them young. But when you get to twenty-five or thirty years, and Daddy oh, so you're you're not talking much, ten years ago. You're talking, talking about okay. Yeah. So those are the sorts of things you know you would you would find in my cellar that I am reaching for. But uh, I will interject a larger answer to your question. Look, I'm sixty-five years old at this point. You look like
3: p- forty-nine. Thank you. It's the wine. It pickles you.
2: Yeah, or that, or the formaldehyde. <laughs> um, it's I reached a point in my life where I realized my colleagues in the wine industry were very much overtaking me in the amount of knowledge they were accumulating, and particularly the breadth of knowledge that they were accumulating. And so I had an internal dialogue. Can I forgive myself if I decide to just let that be and become a specialist in the small group of wines that I love very much? And I decided to do that. So I don't, but this goes back
3: to what we discussed during the 80s yeah. when everything's kind of blowing up. You said, I'd rather be good at yeah.
2: these, you know. Then I want to be good at if I want to be seriously good at a few things rather than be mediocre at a bunch of things.
3: But then you said something before you said, if you were 25, maybe Rabir or or, or maybe so there's no I don't know the right word. There's no need for you to expand the portfolio with other regions because of everything we just, you know, expertise. There's enough great stuff. You like the relationship with the vignerons, the growers and all that. Exactly,
2: and there's two reasons also not to do it, one of which you don't want to spread yourself too thin. Uh, you want to dance with the ones that brung you. I have a lot of growers in my portfolio. They deserve a certain amount of my attention, and I don't want to dilute it because I'm bored, I need something new. But the other (laughs) thing, which I think is even more important, is I think for any of us in the business, there need to be wine regions whose wines we love and do not sell because those wines we can drink recreationally. Right,
3: right. Good point.
2: You know, and and it it cannot be helped. If I'm drinking a wine in my portfolio, there is always, I'd like to banish the wine merchant part of me, but I can never do it completely. Whereas if I drink wines from outside my portfolio or outside even the types of wines I work with, that can be fun again. Right. You talk about that in the book a little um, I want to ask
3: you a question, and let's not spend a lot of time on this, because okay. I, got, I got a sense of it before we uh, went on the air. So I recently attended the Raw Wine Fair, which is a natural wine fair. Yes,
2: I know where this is going.
3: And Well, no, it's pretty straight up, you know, and it's uh-huh. definitely a growing movement, no pun intended. Okay. You know, I sense you have an uneasy relationship with natural wines. What just...
2: Tell me, am I right? Yes, you are. There's a certain amount of kind of folkloric thinking, rather sentimental and somewhat fuzzy thinking that goes into it. The, one of the problems in the natural wine community is the conspicuous minority of atrocious ones <laughs> suck a lot of the oxygen out of the room and can help us forget the great majority of them that really are very beautiful. And I, my feeling about natural wines is love the many good ones... Hate the few bad ones and call out the people who can't or won't tell the difference. And I had a conversation with a young wine professional in Boston, where I live, a little while ago. And uh, he was extolling the virtues of a wine that was very clearly flawed. (laughs) I mean, it was bacteriologically flawed, it was (laughs) dirty. And so I pulled him aside and I said, You know, you know that this, this wine is flawed, don't you? And he answered me quite sincerely. He says, yeah, but, but who's to say what is a flaw? Oh, boy. And I said, oh, uh, you went to the Kellyanne Conway School of Logic. So there really aren't any flaws. There's just alternate virtues. Right. Now I understand. It's alternate flaws. Right, alternate flaws. <laughs> well, okay, I'm going to say something really crude right now. But let's say that you get onto the elevator and you lay a really stinky fart. Right. And the next person comes on and says, oh, Dude, couldn't you have waited? And you say, well, who's to say what's a bad smell? <laughs> that's that's a good way to... I think people can
3: close their eyes and visualize it. Yeah. So the, the bad stuff is having a sort of bad pull on the good
2: stuff. But, well, but it's not in the marketplace so much because, unfortunately, there's really, you know... Again, um, I see it. The way I look at the natural wine community is that that they themselves should be the ones who are most uh, eager to kind of police around the perimeter and make sure that those bad wines honestly don't exist. Right. Uh, because they are pulling down the reputation of the thing as a whole. Right. But it's in the nature of all movements to go too far because it's the only way that you can ever know where you should have stopped. Right. I so, guess th- and I think that's kind of you know where a lot of that is at right now.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's a very good perspective, and that's question easily not asked but i wanted to get your take on it um all right let's talk about the book you wrote your first book reading between the wines about seven years ago yeah it was
2: published in uh, 2010 so it took
3: you seven eight years to write another book so the obvious question is you know
2: what inspired you to write now and write this book Reading Between the Wines was, uh, in some senses, a compendium of a lot of writing that I had done for the 15 or 20 years leading up to it. And, you know, those were the bricks, so to speak, and I wrote new material that was the mortar that would hold the bricks together. So, I mean, I had continued writing as the spirit moved me, and once I had a certain amount of material, I thought, does this equal a book or does it not equal a book? Uh... And there needs to be a kind of an overarching theme. And once you hit 60, and for some of us unfortunately even before you hit 60, you come to a certain sort of melancholy point in your life where you realize I'm attending more funerals these days than <laughs> I'm attending <laughs> weddings. Sad. And mortality becomes not some abstract thing that you know, you know hypothetically is in your future but which is entirely unreal to you, but it becomes now, it's a visceral reality. So once you realize that you have a finite amount of time left in this world, it changes the nature of the relationships that you have with the things that are meaningful and valuable to you. In my case, wine. So I looked around also at the prevailing literature, and I thought, I'm not really seeing people write about this. What is the changing nature of a person's relationship to wine when the uh, amount of time we have left on this earth is viscerally finite? Wine for me has always been a glide path into beauty in a larger sense. There are many elements of beauty in the world. Wine is one of them, and it happens to be the one that I have the closest relationship to. So, uh, in this case, you know, you have this curious intersection of beauty and mortality. The great poet had a line: "Death is the mother of beauty," and that was a line that uh, Robert, the other Robert Parker, the writer of mysteries, used to like to put in his hero Spencer's mouth a lot. And which is where I first heard it, lest anybody think that I'm spending a lot of time with my pinky in the air reading poetry. <laughs> uh, so anyways, so I, I saw an opportunity to write about wine from that perspective, because uh, partly because no one else was, and because there I really felt like I had something to say. And... You know, there was also a lot of stuff going on in the wine community. Reading Between the Wines kind of built a house of values. And it sort of said, you know, these are the the ways that I have found wine to be most meaningful, valuable, and useful up till now. And the new book, What Makes a Wine Worth Drinking, kind of puts the furniture in that house, if you will. (laughs) Right. And wine, has always for me, uh, never been a thing. It's always been a being, and that has to do with the way I learned about it. I learned about it by sitting with the people who made it. Lucky me, right? Right. So I don't But claim, you have that but I perspective. Have that. Yeah, right. I don't claim that wine is sentient. I mean, maybe it's biochemically alive. That's above my pay grade. <laughs> but I have always felt that wine has a self, and my interactions with wine are the interactions of equivalent selves, so if wine is a being, that is the kind of the big bang from which a whole network of values begins to form. And many of the chapters of the book are talking about those values. So for example, I have a chapter in the book, which is talking about high alcohol, which I don't like. and But as I was writing that chapter, I realized, you know, it's not about alcohol per se. Everyone's entitled to have a preference for wines that aren't you know big and roasty as opposed to wines that are but i looked at it and i thought what are we really going to wine for i look at wine and i want it to be refreshing and companionable high alcohol wines are very seldom refreshing or companionable that's not in their nature and hard to drink them hard to drink a lot right you know they're a little hot for some foods yeah
3: you know exactly
2: so that led me into another kind of statement of values, if you will, which is that for me, uh, the first duty of wine is to be refreshing. The second duty is to be delicious. The third duty, if possible, is to be fascinating. I and, have a question. Yeah, go ahead.
3: One of my questions was, and tell me if you've approached this, you approached the book with two lenses, as you say, and you also have your own manifesto. Right. Is that the manifesto, or what is the manifesto? Well,
2: it's partly the manifesto. I don't have it memorized, but the the, the manifesto, so to speak. The first statement in the manifesto is that beauty is more important than impact. So, Just explain quickly. Okay. The way a wine tastes is more important than the density with which that taste is expressed. In other words, intensity and power are relatively meaningless if the flavor isn't pleasing. So the way it tastes is more important than the amount of torque or thrust that it has. Right. Beauty is more important than impact. Harmony is more important than intensity. But that that's what, you know, I told you before the interview, that's what I'm trying to get my hands around.
3: You know, wine is not just you know a glass of something it's not something you just swish around and swallow you talked about a relationship with it and that it should be not your word mine revered as more than just there's there's a beauty to it there's a story beyond it you've been talking about it and that's what i want you to but how, how do you describe that that's the tone of the book what what what, what you know what is that
2: <laughs> is that a, is that a silly question it's not a silly question it's just a great question it's kind of like if you would ask me so why? what's up with that but,
3: I, uh, but my question's a little more evolved you know i read most of the book i i understand it and see if you had read the, i didn't have the rest of the up, book no no would have answered I read that the question end. those
2: 16 pages that you no, didn't no read? i
3: skipped okay I, you know that that that's you're talking about the whole gist of you, you know the book, which is real. It's not you know an atlas. It's not no. A, no. a deep dive in a
2: country. Right. It's really that you know that relationship. Yeah, and all well, that, that stuff all exists. I mean, look, each each one of us has uh, in our lives, you know, something that. Makes us incredibly happy, whatever it might be, whatever hobby uh, or or whether it's golf or cooking or driving or so. Now is the time to or, really or tinkering, you know, and and the things that make person A happy don't have to be the same things that make person B happy. It happens for me um, in you know in my life that music makes me happy, wine makes me happy, uh, so those things. The nature, the particular nature of a person's relationship to wine, assuming that, that he's or she is fascinated to begin with, is that you know, wine will deliver um, tremendous and repet- repeating opportunities for great pleasure. And I don't want anybody who hears me now or reads my book thinking that this is an admonition that you have to appreciate wine the way I appreciate it or else you're wasting it or squandering it. The thing I love Good about point. one of the things I love about wine is that wine will meet you wherever you are. <clears throat> if it's just a casual beverage for you then that's enough. But generally those kinds of people don't find their way to a book like mine. So I'm assuming right. I'm talking to a self-selected group of people who are at least interested enough to consider that in wine there may be the potential to be a tremendously absorbing hobby, a great deliverer of pleasure or even in some cases an avenue towards transcendence.
3: That that answers it. Yeah. Um, you know, I was going to ask you what do you want people to get out of the book, but that really, you know, that answers the question. In, that in sense. some
2: senses, you know, I, first I'd like the book obviously to be amusing and interesting for them. I want the book to be a good companion. Well,
3: that if people don't know you, I mean, that's your style, your wit, your depth of intelligence. I mean, it's a very Interesting, fun, fun is not a fair word, but, you know, it's a very enjoyable read. It's very emotional and passionate, Yeah. you know, so you you pick up all of that. Um, So the eponymous third chapter of the book, right? Yes, What Makes a Wine Worth Drinking. What Makes a Wine Worth Drinking. How do you
2: answer that question? Did we attempt to answer that or? You know, uh, that was the first chapter that was written. After the, really yeah, after the paperback
3: is of, that when you were thinking about the book? That's the first thing that came out. That,
2: it was the first thing I was moved to write. And why wasn't it the first chapter? It's funny. It's well, my editor and I, uh, we tinkered around with the sequence, and we wanted he particularly wanted to have a momentum in the book, uh, and so he did. He rearranged the way a lot of the material was formed, uh, and made the book better in the process of so doing. But I had written a. a a preface or a forward I never remember which is which, to the paperback version of my first book, which I liked very much. And, and I, as, as a writer, uh, parenthetically now, as a writer, I have things that I just walk away from because they're all right. I can't make them any better. They're at least acceptable and then there's things that I like okay, they're pretty good, and then every once in a while there's something I write and I go, oh yeah, man, I nailed that. <laughs> so, And I really liked the, uh, the preface to the last book and I thought, well, maybe I'm on a roll here because I seem to be expressing myself fairly well. And what makes a wine worth drinking arose out of a conversation. It was just like a dinner party conversation. And so a couple days later I sat down to answer that question to see if it could be answered. So... I decided in the process of writing that chapter that what made a wine worth drinking was whether it was honest and authentic. It didn't matter. Pe- people will always say, well, a wine is worth drinking if you like how it tastes. And I would say, I would answer that question by saying, no, that's not what makes it worth drinking. Because industrial wine can be manipulated is this, to make you like the way it tastes. This,
3: are you explaining what authenticity in wine is now? Yeah,
2: exactly. So, go ahead. Exactly. So... You know we everyone in the food community knows that food can be but the crunch in the potato chip can be manipulated <laughs> engineered engineered the aftertaste in the wheat thin all that stuff uh, can be ins- incredibly skillfully manipulated to get you to eat half the box of this stuff uh, so and it's it's precisely the same with wine you know wine can be manipulated to swaddle you in this oh that's yummy. Stuart Pickett calls it the fluffy white bunny taste. So I don't think you can answer the question of what makes a wine worth drinking by saying, well, it's worth drinking if someone likes it.
3: Not good enough? Not
2: good enough. Not good enough. So I thought, all right, what's the baseline value here? And the baseline value is that it needs to be honest and authentic, which by which I mean to say it's artisanal. It arises from a vineyard and the people who work it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the wine is good. So someone then would say to me, well, are you trying to say that you should drink a bad wine that happens to be made by a little grower as opposed to a delicious wine that happens to be made by some big industrial conglomerate? And I would say, you're asking the wrong question. That's like saying to me, I've got a little restaurant that makes hamburgers and they buy all the grass raised beef from a local farmer and all of it's good. It's all it feels good. The values are perfect, but the burgers aren't very good. Meanwhile down the street there's another place that probably gets their ground beef from Cisco and you know, but and their burgers are yummy. And I would say I wouldn't go to either of those places. Right. I'd keep looking around until I found somebody who made a really good burger and did it the right way.
3: Same with wine. Same
2: with wine. So again, you know, people will pose these questions as a false dichotomy. You don't have to make that choice. You don't have to drink a bad wine in order to drink a proper or authentic wine. There's millions of excellent, authentic, honest wines in the world. It's not hard to find them. So the
3: antidote to that is look for them.
2: L- Precisely. They're there.
3: Yeah. I mean, you'll attest that they're there. Yeah. It's just you can't go to the same place or, you know, drink the same stuff. Yeah. Um, what? Um, so that's authenticity, mm-hmm. right? What about... It's a living thing, mm-hmm. wine. I mean, it's a farmed product in that sense. Um,
2: yes, an agricultural it, product. Is that important? Oh, it's crucial. It's absolutely okay. crucial. Okay. And it's crucial because uh, because it comes from nature, and uh, despite our many efforts, man does not ultimately have dominion over nature. And <coughs> excuse me. And w- nature will kick your ass if you're a wine grower. Right. You know, Helmut Dunhoff once said to me, if God were truly just, vintners could make every vintage twice. <laughs> if you had a second because, shot at it. Because the lessons that you learn from any given vintage <laughs> may or may not apply to circumstances that will happen for the rest of your entire life. Not, not- so if you are nature's humble servant, then you very quick re- quickly realize who is calling the shots and what is your place in the transaction. Right. And that introduces all kinds of healthy elements where terroir is concerned because you realize then the flavor is in your land. And so you're not trying to manipulate it or obtrude upon it or diddle it or anything. You just want to bring it into existence as clearly as possible. So uh, that way you can serve this beauty that you appreciate and that you have the privilege of working with. And every grower I know or every grower I work with, without exception, all feel that way they all have their own ways of saying it right but they all feel that way
3: that's interesting Mm -hmm. Um, I want to get into that a little more Um, we have to take a break Um, we're talking to Terry Thies Terry's new book um, what makes a wine worth drinking is uh, now available we'll tell you a little more about how to get it at the end you're listening to the grape nation we'll be back in a moment
1: Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the 8-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Before we got our Le Creuset, the cookware we used most often was an antique Griswold cast iron pan. It didn't take long for me to realize how much I'd been missing enamel cast iron in my life. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron, but paired with the unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN, that's lecreuse tcom slash HRN to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN.
3: All right, we're back. We're back with our guest, Terry Theis. I'm still here. He's still here. Um, Terry's portfolio um, of German, Austrian, and champagnes, mostly grower champagnes, are among the best wines in the world. We're talking about Terry's new book, What Makes a Wine Worth Drinking. So let's finish up a little on the portfolio and on the book. You started getting into something, and I want you to finish you were really talking about the connection between wine and people and the soil. And I think all of those elements, probably the people, are important in why you have certain wines in your portfolio and the relationships. Tell me about you know wine, people, soil.
2: Um, the poetic answer to that, there are two answers. The poetic answer is, If you work with producers who are deeply and intimately connected with their soil, and you drink their wines and like them, then by implication, you too are connected to their soils. You're connected to the grower. The grower is connected to the soil. It's just an algebraic equation. And I find that to be very helpful for a human being, because it helps to connect us to places in the world that we're not currently standing. Right. You know, it helps us to be aware <clears throat> of the, the validity and existence of all these places, all these little micro places that, to me, make a mosaic of fascination in the world the other thing where people are concerned... And Germany, take Germany specifically, oh, hey. it's a huge mosaic. Oh, it's an enormous mosaic, tremendously e, e, intricate mosaic. You know,
3: like Burgundy has all these little hectares of family Burgundy things. Burgundy too. But Germany, you know, there's all different regions, small areas. Yeah. I mean, you've navigated your way through all
2: that, but it oh comes back to the people in and the land. now even smaller. I mean, you know, before the German wine law changed... Uh, in What
3: was the German wine law? Well, in
2: 1971... Before then, there were something over 20,000 registered Einzellagen, or single vineyards. And it was believed that that was too many. So they collapsed a lot of them down, and with the 71 wine law, it became about 6,000 Einzellagen. And... The, the original names of those micro-parcels never completely disappeared. When the growers talk among themselves, they refer to those right. micro-parcel names. And recently, because there's been a kind of a hiatus in wine legislation where the Germans are waiting for the EU laws to supersede their own wine laws, these old micro-parcel names are coming back on labels. So now... Give me an example
3: of a few that are coming back. I mean, throw some names out.
2: Uh, (laughs) Selbach Oster makes a wine from a micro parcel in the Zeltinger Schlossberg that's called Schmidt. Okay. They make another one from a parcel in Zeltinger Himmelreich that's called Anrecht. And they make one from the Zeltinger Sonnenur that's called Rotlei. There's another... All these little parcels all have their own names. Right. And so for, for somebody like me who wants the most specific possible identification of precisely where my wine comes from. This is a wonderful trend. You know, now I can Google earth it and it's just one little tennis court sized parcel of vines. This wine is right exactly from there. That is crazy. And that's wonderful. Now we come back to the human element and having done this work now for, I don't even know, countless number of years. um, Sometimes when I've traveled over to Europe with customers, who have traveled with other importers, they have said to me, Terry, nobody has relationships with their growers like you do." And that has happened with trial and error over the years. If I find I have an uncongenial relationship with a producer, even if the wines are good, it's not sustainable. it's not it, life is just too short to work with people you don't like so now it has come down to all the people whom I am inordinately fond of who make wonderful wines. That's my portfolio. Obviously, there's some who are deeper friends than others.
3: Right, <laughs> through all those years. But that's making exception for cranky guys where the crank is a charm and, you know, it's like, what do I need this guy for? But I do because, you know, he means it and all that. Exactly.
2: He's a porcupine. You know, once you get past the quills, it's just a tender little frightened animal inside. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I'm always curious
3: about this. How does social media... What effect does it have on
2: wine? I mean, do you? Well, it's the same effect that it has on anything else that's discussed. You know, I mean, social media is a double-edged sword. I didn't do Facebook until the first book was published, and and you did it because and I did it because of be a good idea. I did it because I didn't do
3: Facebook until I did this show mm-hmm. because it would be good for the show. I didn't care to be on right Facebook.
2: Yeah, the the, the publisher now is talking a little bit about Instagram. Um, and I said I was willing, but the subject was dropped somewhat to my relief. The only place I said I would draw the line is i wouldn 't do twitter
3: what do you, how, do you see how it's used with other people? I mean is
2: it I, used yeah well yeah. And why is it good bad silly i don't know it's the internet it doesn't necessarily bring out the best in people it's uh you know it 's not a tool that I particularly use facebook's not a tool I especially use socially right. I'm not interested in narrating all the details of my adorable life. I don't even care about them, and I don't know why anyone else ought to. But we do use it for pragmatic purposes. Right. You know, We'll use it to announce events or things like that.
3: Right. I mean, it's good for that. I think the problem is is too many people are, and I think the gist of your book is the relationship with wine. Too many people are looking for the good shot. They're forgetting, you know, who made the wine, where it came from, everything we discussed. What they care about is, you know, disseminating that, uh, you know, one thing out there, and I don't know
2: how good that is for anything. Or taking pictures of the bottles that they drink uh, and posting them on social media, and I'm not exactly sure. I mean... If someone comes over to our house and we open a lot of good bottles and the bottles are lined up and that person takes a picture, I'm not going to say, no, I forbid you from doing that. That's fine.
3: That's them. Uh, That's them, not me. Yeah.
2: But I I cannot see a purpose in doing it. We opened a bottle from my wife's birth vintage uh, to celebrate her birthday last month. And it was a beautiful wine. Did it and show well? It showed wonderfully. And we put that picture up on Facebook. But you that's know, an just, occasion. That's an occasion. You know, those mm-hmm. are the things you want to share and your hope yeah. family. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not like lining up all these great bottles that you drunk and with the meta message being, look what I drank, don't you wish you were me? Well, there's a lot of that. And that's, much too much of yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, that was the point
3: I was getting to. All right, last question, and then I don't want to subject you to our wine list, which is a bunch of questions. Okay. Um, why does everyone hate wine snobs?
2: Well, we-
3: snobs are inherently
2: hateful. Right, but wine <clears throat> snobs have evolved that even further. Well, part of the answer to that question is the one I just gave. I think the other part of it is, and I don't know why this should be so, Wine is something about which a lot of people feel terribly inadequate and, and somewhat frightened.
3: Right. It's an intimidating It's
2: intimidating because it's multiplicity. There's so much of it and there's hundreds of thousands of wines and all these labels and all these words. Which is we don't more know what than fishing
3: and cars and other, you know, hobby. It's just yeah. very detailed. Yeah, it's very
2: so, detailed. And, you know, so it's intimidating. And and the snob conveys an air of superiority over poor, intimidated you, uh, and it just makes it makes the whole things worse. And unfortunately, wine people can sometimes, mostly inadvertently, play into that. You know, there's a little section in the book where um, I'm talking about sitting around with a group of people, right. and they're all dissecting this one particular wine uh, in ways i happen myself not to find especially productive or entertaining anymore and the thought that was running through my mind was this is why everyone hates us i mean we're like a youtube videos of um why we hate wine snob but i think the
3: book there's no snobby approach from the book if anything it's pointed out or there's examples you know particularly that chapter and how everyone you know looks at it that way um I just think you're right. People are intimidated by wine, people that are involved with wine, and, you know, hopefully that'll break down as time goes by. I
2: hope so, too. I believe in hierarchies. I believe some things are better than others. I don't believe it's helpful, and I do think it's sentimental to try and flatten everything onto some plane of spurious equality. Um, And, you know, cherishing the distinctions between the good, the better, the excellent, and the great is why we're into wine in the first place. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm trying to use that knowledge as a cudgel to beat some poor person over the head with. It's like nobody has to like wine the way I like it.
3: Right. And again, that's a very prevailing, you know, theme throughout the book. And that's why the book's so interesting. It's very thought-provoking in that sense. Thank you. All right, I want to subject you to our wine list. It's five questions we okay. ask all our guests. We okay. post them. We have a great data bank of the best people in wine and what they're drinking. They're simple. Um, you may have answered this, but expand on it a little more. What are you drinking now? What Are you tasting stuff for the portfolio? Are you curious about things? Are you changing seasons? Professionally, today
2: on your desk at home. It. Professionally, I'm tasting some of the wines that I have not tasted uh, since they were selected in the early spring of this year. Some of them I have gotten to retaste, but some not. And so I'm lunging towards those because, okay. you know, I, I taste those wines many times as cask samples. I write a tasting note about them that goes into my, my sales literature, and now I'm tasting them like, oh, man, am I going to have to eat those words or was I relatively accurate? <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm, no matter how long I've done this and no matter how confident I am in my abilities, I make mistakes like every other fallible person does. And so I really want to make sure that the wine was what I said it was. Recreationally... What I'm drinking now, and this is a very uh, uh, vivid and animated time of year as seasons change, Right, like we don't drink a lot of red wine over this course of the summer because the whole vibe isn't right for it. Even in air conditioning, just knowing that it's filthy and sultry and awful outside, I I don't want to drink a mm, suave, warm, murmury red wine. But now, as the nights get cold and the flannel sheets are on the bed and, the, and you start to use the oven again, now it's like, okay, let's go into braising the cellar. Meats. Braising meats. exactly. <laughs> right. Now it's time to, 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 you know, to lay claim to all those beautiful red wines that we've been looking at all summer so long. So what
3: kind of reds now? Oh, Burgundy, of course. Okay, so we
2: start with Burgundy. We start, with, we all start, we start and end with Burgundy. Um, Do you like Beaujolais? I like Beaujolais, but it's funny. I don't. I don't drink a lot. Drink a lot of? I don't drink a lot of Beaujolais, and I'll tell you why. It's not because I've made a decision that I don't need Beaujolais in my life, but it's because Austrian red wines fulfill that function for me especially the talk basi- about that
3: quickly yeah, some of the red o- austrian you said austrian not australian yeah austria austrian so like blanken
2: like blaufränkisch at its basic level like zweigelt at its basic level uh, those wines scratch a similar itch to the one that beaujolais scratches right so you, you know satisfy yourself with i satisfy that. myself with those pinot
3: noir from those regions uh not as much? less so okay.
2: although there's been some very interesting stuff going on with german pinot noir needless okay. to say So Rioja is another area that I really love drinking. I said Rioja before, Ribera Sacra, um, the occasional Rhone wine, those kinds of things. But it's the time of year where you want a a room temperature beverage. I I agree with you. Although I've
3: had guests that say, you know, drink uh, rosé all year round, you know. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. All right, do you does Terry Thies have a favorite wine and food pairing? Silly question, but everybody's always curious. Is there something that you do over that you know that works well or
2: I can't say that there is. And I'm sorry that this answer will frustrate. There are the,
3: the more it frustrates, the better it is. Okay.
2: There are principles of pairing that I think generally work all the time, or at least enough of the time. But every time I've tried to replicate a specific wine and food pairing, I've found that it never quite works as well the second time as it did the first. But um, we are very careful about how we drink uh, and, and eat at home. And my wife, if she's cooking the meal... She knows the kind of wine I plan to drink Mm -hmm. with it, but there's a certain point where she says, okay, I have to taste it now. Because she's at the point in the prep where she can adjust the prep. So if the wine has more acidity than she thought, she can squeeze a half a lemon into the sauce. If the wine has more sweetness than she thought, she can take a little bit of, you know, like um, pear liqueur and dash a a little touch of that into the sauce.
3: So you're talking more about pairing, not a specific food and wine, but the preparation and the type of wine that would best complement it. That's not a frustrating answer. Okay, good to know. That's a good one. Good to Um, know. So you're camped out mostly up in Massachusetts and Boston, and you travel a lot. I do. I ask everyone their favorite wine restaurant and or bar, but in your case, a couple things. Let's lean towards your portfolio, Austrian, German, Grower Champagne. Can you name a few places, whether it's New York, Europe, or here, that are just really good at that? Not being exclusive of anyone or favorite. No, that's the problem. Who does it right?
2: That's the problem, Sam. I probably can do it. Don't think. But I don't want to. Okay. Because on the spot right now... A couple of names come to mind, and as soon as you turn the the equipment off, I'm going to slap myself in the head and think, how could I possibly have forgotten this guy?
3: You know, whenever I ask the question, I fear more of what you said is going to happen. But people, you know, open up. They tend to hang up places, and that's Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Um, But is it fair to say now more than ever there's more opportunities, you know, where bars are serving a bigger selection of Austrian, grower champagne is, or not there yet.
2: I think we're there, and I think actually that we went past there, you know, because we're living in some respects also in this kind of curious alcoholic beverage world where all bets are off. So you have... Sommeliers doing pairing menus using mead and sake and craft beers and you know and all this and we're fighting the cocktail market as well, and uh, so yeah, there's there's business for German wine and Austrian wine and there's business for grower champagnes, and the more business there is, the more competition there is. Right. So you know we're we're content with how it's going for us.
3: Do you have? This is a tough question. Good. The amount of uh, wines and the specialty you have. Is there a favorite all-time wine or wines? You know, it doesn't always have to be the rarest or the most expensive. It could be experiential. Does does something come to the top of the list for you?
2: Some of the greatest wines that I drunk in the last several years, I write about uh, in an essayistic way in the book, Um. And I'm trying to so think...
3: You, you talk, you taste and talk about a lot of great wines and vintages in the book.
2: Yeah. I'd have to say, in some respects, the most profound experience that I've had with a wine in many years was uh, one that I do tell the story about in the book, and it was tasting the 1953 at Gaston Shee Cave. And 53 happens to be my birth year, but Nicola didn't know it when he brought that wine out. And... It was an incredibly profound experience, and it, it really, I traveled astrally at that point, and I was up somewhere above the room, and I was thinking, here's the wine from my birth year, and thats that was one of the first moments where I started thinking, it's you Know it's time to maybe begin now the conversation th- with the man with the scythe.
3: Who's Nicholas Chiquet,
2: the producer of that wine? He was the producer, yeah. He was the producer, okay. he he, get, he opened it, he plundered his cellar, and brought that wine forth. There have been so many beautiful wines that I've had over the years. I, w- I figured that, but. but but to answer the question in general terms, the and this will surprise you, I think, probably the most profound experiences that I have ever had with wine in red were with old Barolo or Barbaresco, and with white were old Chenin Blancs. Okay. So here's me, that, you know. That's a good answer. It's that, but that that's is just how it I mean, that's how it's how it's very specific,
3: because you said earlier that you love Nebbiolo, but, you know, highly aged and all that. Right. And older Chenins, which um, uh, is a great, great one, too. All right, last question, and then we're going to wrap up. All right. We ask all our guests this best wine around 15, 20 bucks retail. I think you could sort of stray into that. Give me a red, give me a white. You can give me a region. You could say Muscadet, not that you would. You could producers, you in agree? general. Yeah, uh,
2: you can be as specific as you want. The first thing that I would say is any consumer looking for value, um, I can answer the question of how to find the best value wines in four words, go. Bet against the crowd. And define that a little more. Basically, it means that if the supply and demand equation is in your favor, if it is a buyer's market for the wine, then you will get a lot of bang for your buck. And insofar as German Riesling is still not the popular kid, I would still say that dollar for dollar, you're gonna get better quality. For Riesling from Germany, than for any other grape variety See, I agree. from so any I other categorically,
3: place, categorically. If you look there yeah. and bet against the crowd,
2: in my portfolio we have a wine called Winnings, which we have created almost precisely and specifically for that market. Um, it's under twenty dollars. It's riotously delicious. It has an, a beautiful designer label that doesn't have a goddamn animal on it. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> A lion or something, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, right,
3: give me a give me a comparable red suggestion. You know, like it, a winning.
2: I know with red, I think it's a little more difficult. Uh, and again, I can't say that I have had too many fifteen dollar reds that have made me all that happy. And in my portfolio, where I begin to feel happy with our low end reds, now we're starting to talk around twenty dollars a bottle retail. And that's just again the cost of production and the and the we're fighting against the domestic market in Austria, which drinks these wines quite eagerly. So uh, somebody else out there will need to enlighten me, and I'll be happy to get uh, letters, calls, emails, whatever. Right. Hey T. if you're looking for something really good for fifteen bucks, this is the red wine that I recommend.
3: We'll leave it at that. okay. All right, Terry Thies, we have to wrap up. Thank you, Sam. I'm going to uh, just do a quick close. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samathegrapeNation.com. That's Sam at the Grape Nation. You can follow us on Facebook at Grape Nation, follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby, and the hashtag The Grape Nation on Twitter, Terry's favorite social medium, at BenRuby. Um, We would also like you to subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. I will post Terry's wine list and any of the wines that we talked about on our social media sites so you can get into them. Um, Terry, let's talk about the book quickly. Where can we find it? Amazon, Better
2: Bookstores? Amazon, Better Bookstores. Basically, I was in Barnes & Noble on Union Square here in New York the other day just to see if they had my book. They had four copies. Okay. I was flying the rest of the day.
3: Okay. So it's out there. It's out there. Um, um, so take a look, but Amazon's always the easiest play for sure. It'll show up at your door in a day or two. All right, I want to thank again our guest Terry Theist. Look for his new book, "What Makes a Wine Worth Drinking," and praises the sublime. Thank you to everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to the Grape Nation. <laughs>